better get some talking juice here because one of those sermons that as I work on I I can't help but be overwhelmed by what's being said and as I was studying I noticed that there's one doctrine or aspect of Christian teaching that is really conspicuous by its absence in preaching and and it's the doctrine of the adoption of God's children. And by adoption I mean that divinely revealed truth that teaches the believer that he or she has not only by grace been justified and saved, but brought into a, a living organic relationship that is marked by fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and also with one another. This theme is particularly dear to me and to many of you, but it was also dear to the English and American Puritans who saw this truth as one that touched on every area of our earthly existence. In the writing of the Apostle Paul and and also of John, this teaching was very much at the heart of their preaching that men are justified by the act of grace, but one of the benefits of that justification is our, our placement within the family of God. Our justification is a provision of God's saving grace, which God intends should shape the contours and determination and the climate of our entire relationship with Him. Not only in this life, but in the ages of eternity. And so what is such a provision? Well, it's the act of God by which, because of the work of Christ on our behalf, we are constituted as sons and daughters of the living God. And we are given the right to go to God the Father and call Him Father, Abba Father. The act of God, which makes all this possible, is called adoption. The placing of men and women as his sons and daughters. And when someone is brought into a family, in our experience, they're brought in one of two ways. They're either brought in by birth as a result of the union of the mother and the father, or they're brought in by a legal transaction called adoption. And when we turn to the Word of God, we find similar emphasis set before us And our focus is going to be upon us being brought in to the family of God by this legal transaction. Adoption is a blessing of God's salvation in Christ, distinct from but never separated from justification. Let me say that again. Adoption is a blessing of God's salvation in Christ, distinct but never separated from justification. And I trust that many of you 
could now clearly state what justification is and that which constitutes that blessing of God's grace. It's the act of God's free grace bestowed upon sinners in which he does a twofold wonderful thing. He pardons us from all of our sins, past, present, and future, in terms of our liability to legal punishment. You see, justification settles the matter of a legal liability that we have due to sin and the punishment of that sin. He pardons all of our sins. But not only that, secondly, he accepts and accounts us as righteous in his sights in his sight. He credits to us the perfect law keeping of Jesus Christ as the substitutionary curse bearing Jesus. One is a negotiation and pardon, and the other is a gift. When some theologians and writers on this subject of justification They have taken the second aspect of crediting to us the perfect righteousness of Christ, therefore accepting and receiving us as righteous. And they have taught that basically all adoption is is another way to express the second aspect of justification. God's accepting and receiving us as righteous. However, justification and adoption are both legal acts of God and relate to declarations that God makes concerning us, which are external to us. They aren't identical. This is a family of words in the Bible to describe the work of adopting us into his family a family of words entirely different from the words that have to do with justification. When we open our Bibles, we find that adoption is treated as a manner in its own right, and therefore we rejoice that we are brought into God's favor in our justification. In justification, we are brought into the present acceptance by God as the world's judge. However, this is the amazing thing. In adoption, we're brought into a permanent intimacy with God as our Heavenly Father. Many years ago, the first, the first book that I read about God was by J.I. Packer. I t- I always say I'm not going to be talking about the Packers. Here we go. Here's J.I. Packer. He says, To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved by God and cared for by God the Father is even a greater thing. In Packer's classic book, Knowing God, he says this, and this is fairly lengthy, but I think it's, it's profitable for for us to hear and and understand. Packer says, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, even higher than justification. 
Now this may cause the raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God in which since Luther, evangelicals have laid the greatest stress and we are accustomed to say almost without thinking that free justification is God's supreme blessing to sinners. Nonetheless, careful uh, thought will show the truth of the statement that we have just made that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. That justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future is the primary and fundamental blessing of the, the gospel, and that's not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our Maker. Packer goes on to say, so we need the forgiveness of our sins and the assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing. It is the primary, but not highest. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. In justification, God declares of penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve because Jesus, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place on the cross. This free gift of acquittal and peace won for us at the cost of Calvary is wonderful enough in all conscience, but justification does not in itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. In idea, at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea. Conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as children and heirs, end quote. I think you can see the passion of Dr. Packer. And he concludes that they are different, though inseparable, and that God never, never adopts a sinner whom he has not justified. And God never justifies a sinner in whom he does not likewise adopt in his family. And so let's go ahead and turn to our text for this morning. It's found in 1 John chapter 3, and we'll be looking at the three verses, verses 1 through 3. First John chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. 
Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is is pure. The first word that we see there is the word behold. The Greek word is idol. And John starts this chapter with behold. Behold what? Behold what manner of love. The idea of behold is to look, to be aware, to discern, to discover. In other words, here is an announcement of the greatest importance. Behold! It's something that a herald would say. And many, many years ago, the prophet Isaiah prophesied, saying the Lord himself should give a sign. Behold! A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. What an announcement. Be aware. Look. Behold. Discern what's going on. Discern with amazement. The Son of God is coming to become the Son of Man. One day on a Judean hillside, a group of shepherds were tending their sheep. And suddenly with them was angels of the Lord, a multitude of heavenly hosts. And they said, Behold, we bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is none other than Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. John the Baptist he came. He was actually, he's found in the New Testament, but he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He came as a forerunner, the ambassador of the Messiah and the Elijah that God had promised. He promised that he would come before the day of the Lord. And he preached to multitudes. He, ke- he preached to kings. And Herod actually admired John. He went out to hear him. Because John was a powerful preacher of the grace of God. Then standing one day with his two disciples, he looked up. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He saw Jesus Christ. And he said to these men that were with him, Look, Be aware. Be aware what's in your presence right now. Be amazed. Right there is the Passover lamb. You know, one day, time will be no more. The covenant of grace will be no more. The sheep will be gathered all into one fold with one shepherd. The church will be called out and the clouds are going to roll back and the trump of God is going to sound and a voice from heaven will say, Behold, 
look at this great announcement of the greatest importance. What a day that will be. And so, that goes for our text this morning. We are to behold. Behold what? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Here what he's doing is he's connecting this back to verse 29 of the preceding chapter of chapter 2. He says, if you want to know that he is righteous, you know that everyone uh, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And there's this flow. And the flow is that the very fact that you appreciate righteousness, the very fact that you embrace love and strive after righteous living shows that God has poured his love on you, that he loves you. And apart from God's initiative in love towards you, you would still be all about yourself. You would love sin. You would love the world. And so it's amazing that God would go through this effort. Have you ever thought of that? Why didn't he just get rid of all of us and start over from scratch? Why, did he, why didn't he just go, okay, I've had it. That's it. Instead, he took wretches, a wretch like you and me, and he transformed us. It took more to transform you than it, tra- it took to create the heavens and the earth. He did that with words. But to transform wretches into something holy, it took his blood, his sacrifice, his cleansing. And it's not because of any of us what we had that drew his affections. It was his own, his own being, his unlimited capacity to do good to those who are the most unworthy. That's who he set his love on. And the phrase, what manner, in the Greek, is the Greek word potapos. And it's classical for anything foreign, anything alien, something that's inexplicably uh, known. It really says, look, there is a love that is utterly unknown to us. It's not like human love. That's fickle. This is alien. This is a love that human experience doesn't know. It's a love that's outside of us, above us, beyond us. And so John grabs our attention. He says, behold, look at this amazing aspect of God's love. And then he goes on with the second phrase of verse 1. That we should be called children of God. How in the world could we just read that and just go on about your day? Go on and think about all these other things. How do we do that? You, you are now called a child of God. 
fully, wholly, completely out of God's act, acted initiative toward you in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's His crowning love. Nothing that we know of what God has demonstrated comes even close to that level of love. Now, some might say, well, what about the great love between the, God, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Isn't that a greater love? We could debate that all day. That is a glorious love. That is a perfect love. God loving God is one thing. But when God loves wretches, the enemies, the violators of his holiness, the deep, unending offensiveness of our being before his holiness, and yet he pours his love out toward us to make us become a child of his. I submit to you that that is his crowning love. A love that took us from the dominion of Satan and corruption and sin to the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of light. The unbelievable, incomparable depth of God's love for us. It overwhelms John and it should overpower us as well. God the Father is so incredible because it is not given to us because we were lovable. That would be one thing. We weren't. We should think of our, like the Pharisee in the story of the Pharisee and the publican that Jesus told in Luke 18. We often think that way. We think that God is privileged to have someone like me. But let me help you understand this a little better. If you would please turn to Romans chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 6, six through 11. Romans chapter 5. Starting with verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Right there, that should tell us exactly what happened. For, scarce, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. 
Folks, we are not and we're not ever lovable. John recognizes this truth, and that's why he's utterly amazed that the Father poured out his love on us in Christ, that we might become his children. God, the Father's love, is incredible also because he loved us even though we could do nothing for him. We tend to love because of what can happen for us. We love people because they make us feel good. They provide something for us. And we're prone to do this because we're not self-sufficient. We're dependent on others for jobs, for health care, for companionship, for security, and you could go on and on. But God, on the other hand, needs nothing. He needs nothing. He created all creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. He didn't have some science kit. He didn't have even atoms floating around. He had nothing. And he did not make us because he needed fellowship. He created us out of his superabundance, his overflow. He desired to love and fellowship with us. He does not love us because he needs us. He loves us because he desired to love us. And so go back to the word bestowed. And we get a sense of how this love was given. This is the Greek word didomai. And it means to give or supply and to do, do so lavishly. We, we sort of lose that sense of lavishing. How many of you have gone to a bridal shower or a baby shower? You know why it's called a shower? Because it's the idea of a mother's circle of friends and family showering the mother, showering the baby with gifts and their affections. That's why it's called a shower. This is the love that John is speaking of. This is agape love. Or one of the kinds of love that originates from God. According to Jeremiah 31.3, this agape love, it's everlasting. According to Romans 8.35-39, it's unstoppable. According to John 13.1, it is a love that is enduring. According to Ephesians 3.17-19, it's knowable, although it's unexplainable. And because of this love source is God, John continues in verse 1 saying, Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. I don't know about you, but I just don't feel at home in this world. I feel out of place, out of step. And I think that's the way it should be for a child of God. But please don't lose the fact of, of what God is addressing. He's addressing his little children. And let's all remember, although we are in the world, we are not of the world. 
His incomparable love bridged that gap between God and man and made us a child of God. It bridged that gap between God and man, and that's why he became man, to bridge that gap. It was to bridge that gap between sin and holiness. And that's why Jesus came to bridge that gap between death and life. So I've been transferred now out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You want to know something about that? That's a family secret. Notice what John says. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Why? It doesn't know us. This is a family secret. This is something that we know if they don't. So don't try to find the world rejoicing with you. Don't try to find the world agreeing with you or having joy because you have joy. They don't get us. They don't understand our priorities. They don't understand our joys, our convictions. They don't understand our values because they don't know him. In John 15, Jesus says, the world hated me and it will hate you also because you are the objects of a sovereign love of God and he has made you a child of God. They hate you because you're his. This, folks, is the crowning love. This is the climax of the great love of God in making us children. And so, continuing with verse 2, look at it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And in that first word there is the word beloved. And I think that's the way it should be pronounced, by the way, because that just has has meat to it, doesn't it? Beloved. And it's the Greek word agapitos. Does it sound familiar? We've heard agape already. This is agapitos, and it means being favored. It, it actually literally means divinely loved ones. And that's the message that's being conveyed here. And I don't know about you, but when I consider that great truth, I don't know if I should, should shout or cry. Sometimes I think I'll do both. But when are we the beloved of God? Look at the verse. Beloved, now. Now you are children of God. You don't have to wait to get the benefits of being a child of God. Because of God's great love, you are now part of his family. The moment that you you repented and believed and you were born again of the Spirit, you're a child of God. And this, while this is a great blessing on the part of God's family, John doesn't stop to enumerate all of the, the benefits. Instead, he wants us to recognize the future that awaits for us. And so he continues in verse 2 by saying, And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, 
we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The Apostle Paul made an interesting statement in Romans 8.18-25. through 25. If you would please turn there, Romans 8, 18 through 25. Starting with verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectations of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen, is not hope. For why does someone still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. John is also talking about this unveiling, this revealing when Christ appears When Christ returns, we will be like him. We shall be transformed. This transformation is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58, that corruption shall be put on, uh, corruption shall put on incorruption. Mortal shall put on immortality. Death shall be swallowed up in life. We will be changed to be like him and we shall see him as he is. We shall not be God, but we shall be like the Son who is sinless and pure. Here, John's flow of thought. He's saying, you're you're children of God now. But he wants to add something. What we know now and what we experience in Christianity now, it's not the end of the story. There's something more to be added to this. He adds to the present state that we now enjoy as children of God. And he simply uses a connecting word. And. Do you mean to tell me that there is more than just this? How could that be possible? How could there be greater joy and greater blessing than what we already have? Well, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. And he says there's more. It has not yet been revealed. It has not yet been manifested. 
And he goes on to say that when he appears, we will be like him. If you notice, that's in the future tense. Something yet to come. Something that we don't have. He's saying in this verse that there is a greater glory yet to come that will will absolutely dwarf our present position in Christ. There are things to come that eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has stored up for us in heaven, those who love him now. And that's what John is alluding to. There's more to come. We're already living the most noble life that we can on earth. But notice this, that the inspired apostle, as he writes, confesses a certain realm of ignorance of what the fullness is going to be. It hasn't appeared to us yet. But he says there is something that we do know. And what we do know is this, that Christ is returning to earth. And when Christ returns to this earth, certain things are going to happen. He says we're going to be like him. We're going to be like Christ because we're going to see him as he is. I want you to notice something on a little side note here. This isn't a tangent yet. That might come later. John here is looking ahead prophetically. He speaks about events yet to come. And I, I know there's a lot of you that like working out all the details of prophecy and all that, but that's not John's focus here. He's not going to be focusing on that as a result. John here is sort of summing up and collecting the return of Christ all in one concept because he's not wanting to work out all the details of the prophecy yet. He wants you to see something that should impact the nature of your practical, righteous living here and now. So he's not going to get into this big prophetic scheme. He's simply making the point that on the day that Jesus is, is returning to this earth, when he returns, you will see him with your eyes. And you know what is amazing? That as that unfolds, it's going to absolutely blow your mind. The glory and the power and the majesty of this will just blow your mind. That's how great and magnificent it is. Because of what he's saying is that the present age that we are living on or living in is going to come to an end. Everything we see around us right now is temporary. These world leaders that come into power. They will, they will go out of power and fade away. When we look at it in light of eternity, all of this is marginal. It's all going to change. Because our Lord, Jesus Christ, is going to come down from heaven and intervene on this earth. 
he is going to put an end to what we know in this present chapter of human history to advance his purpose, to consummate the plan of God. And that in itself is a staggering realization. The fact that Jesus Christ (coughs) is going to come to this earth He's going to change everything. Sort of jealous of you folks being able to sit. My knees are getting weak. This is, this is, it's hard to think about this without your legs getting all jelly-like. You know what, though? I haven't even got to the good part. The good part? The best part? John says, with the most amazing sentence. It's monosyllabic. We will be like him. All single-syllable words to express the most complex part of this entire text. That's almost like saying, see, Jane, run. It's simple. But look it. Look what he does. We will be like him. And just to be clear, this is just so there's no misunderstanding, we are not going to become God. A creature can never become the creator. We can never fully share in the infinite essence of who he is. But the glorified nature of the risen Christ, he is going to share that with us. And so we can properly see that we will be like him. What do you say? I mean, words start to fail. Amen, brother. When we see him as he is, we will be changed so that we will share his holiness in some manner of his resurrected glory. Think about it. No more sin, no more temptation, no more impulses of wickedness. We're going to be made perfect. And that's your spiritual destiny. And John unfolds this for us for us in a future history. You are going to see Christ more completely, more clearly than you see me. And that's because you're not going to be tainted with sin. And so often we think, well, I can see fine. That's what I thought. And then I went to the doctor. Told me, you need glasses. Just think. We can't even see each other in the fullness that we will see Christ on that day. It's going to be clear and undiminished by the opposition of the world. It's going to be clear and obvious and glorious. That's what's ahead for you and I as as believers in Christ. And then John goes right into the application As you recognize your position, rejoice at your future. 
But what do you do at that point? You repent of your sins. Look at verse 3. And you kind of have to come back to earth here and say, okay, God, I can't wait till I get there. But what do I do in the meantime? Verse 3. Remember, this is his whole context. What he's been talking about through this whole book so far is a righteous Christian life. And he says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This hope, this confident assurance that God has promised about seeing Christ, he's going to deliver to you and I. Everyone who has that confidence that animates their life right here and now. If you say you're a Christian, there are consequences to that. If you say you're a Christian, then there's, they're saying, you're saying great things belong to me. If you're going to be with Christ in perfect glory, you're going to be like him, seeing him as he is, then obviously what you're going to want to do in your remaining days on earth is to increasingly conform to the image that you will one day see in perfection. John says, everyone who has this hope, if you love the Lord, if you have that hope, looking forward to that day that John is talking about, there are, there are no exceptions. Everyone who has that hope pursues a righteous life. He says, purifies himself. And that Greek word is hegnizo. It's a word that emphasizes an inward purity. An inward purity marked by affections for Christ, confession of sin, an ever-creasing desire for holiness. That's the mark of those who have this hope. It's not theoretical. It is real, and you act upon it. It's just like when you are expecting someone at your house. You're expecting to, to, to do something for them and, and maybe provide a meal or whatever. You don't let your house be a mess. You go, I want to honor you by making sure it's clean. Don't mistake. This isn't a work is a work of grace. This is because of who you are. The work on the cross is done. Your justification is, is taken care of. This is out of love for him. Out of desire for him. I don't think any of us guys seeing our beautiful wives walk down that aisle ended up wearing their work clothes. We ended up wanting to present ourselves as men, godly men. Men that honored that one that would walk down, our, down the aisle toward us. We need to consider if this is 
what we have to look ahead to. I'm going to clean up in anticipation of that. And that becomes a defining ambition in your life. The pursuit of inward purity here and now. Your desire to live, to glorify Him because the world is watching. You don't live a life that shows that you have been changed, that your life is no longer yours. You're robbing Him of His glory. His glory is that the watching world sees those who are His because they are becoming more and more conformed to the image of Him. So the sin and the things that we deal with now, we put to death. Theologians call that mortification. That's where we get the term mortician. We mortify our sin. We deal with it. We turn away from it. But we do so not as an act to try to find favor. That is grace. We do it in anticipation of that great and glorious day. There are far too many people that flippantly say, oh, I, I'm a Christian. I walked that aisle and was baptized when I was 10 years old. And then there's no fruit. There's no desire. There's nothing in their life that points to that anticipation in their life. As a preacher, it's my job to warn you and admonish you that's not true Christianity. True Christianity is that you see what your Savior has done on your behalf. And you are so overwhelmed. And you have been so changed that you show everyone you are anticipating His return. John says, everyone that hopes in Christ pursues a purification of his heart. That's why I said last week, it's too many people when they get up and they give their testimonies, it's the same testimony they gave when they were saved. Please, continue with your testimony this is what happened when I was a wretched sinner saved by the grace of God. And this is what's happened to me now. This is how it's continuing in my life. Ask yourself whether holiness matters to you. And if it doesn't, turn Turn to Him. Repent of your sin and believe. And then rejoice in the future of being with Christ and seeing Him face to face. 
That should be your most precious thought of your heart every day. That the Savior will stand in front of you. And I don't know about you. I don't know what it's going to be like. But I can just imagine being flooded with the greatest joy I will be able to stand and just look into the face of the one who gave his life for my wretched life. People, show the hope that's in you. Live for Christ. Die to yourself. Daily, pick up your cross and follow him. That's what John's saying. And he's saying it's not an option. If you are in Christ, you will desire that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what can we say about these things? I feel so inadequate to proclaim them so inadequate to even understand them. I can just imagine how we are so inadequate to even receive them. And yet you have given us these truths ever so graciously. We don't want this just for ourselves. We want to help and bring others to this realm of salvation that we so enjoy. And we pray that your work of the Holy Spirit would be about saving souls and that we would on our lips have the gospel. And we pray that you would use us to bring them this greatest hope. And in the meantime, that we would grow and prosper in the grace and knowledge of this unspeakable great Lord Jesus Christ to whom we give all glory, all thanks, and all praise. We pray this in our Savior's most precious name. Amen.